This podcast is produced by Elmcore Youth and Adult Activities. Welcome everyone to episode five, COVID, domestic violence, and HIV. My name is Saida Dunstan, Executive Director of Elmcore, and our guests today are Nadine Just, Natalie Rubio-Torrio, and Danielle Francis. Welcome guys. Um, I wanna just say this is our first panel of only women. So um, apropos that we all be together on this very special time to have conversations, I wanted to take a moment and honor Breonna Taylor's life again. Um, and as Malcolm X said, you know, Black women are the most disrespected, unprotected. And so I want to just make sure that we let you know that we've got some powerhouse women, um, just as I'm sure Breonna Taylor was and would have continued to be. So we have some powerhouses today, and we're going to tell you who's here. Um, Danielle Francis is a licensed social worker who has been working in the field of human services for over 15 years. In both her personal and professional work, she has worked with children and adults living with HIV for over 20 years and has been awarded the New York City, the New York State, apologies, New York State Department of Health Commissioners Recognition Award in 2013. She's currently working in the area of mental health and substance treatment and is the clinical director and program development um, director at Elmcore Youth and Adult Activities. So she is um, one of our own, and so we're happy to have her. Um, next, we have Nadine Just, also a social worker and an MPA, is a seasoned executive and experienced in the healthcare, healthcare assistant operations. She's good in program management and implementation. And in September of 2019, she joined New York City's largest public health system to oversee HRSA operations for its federally qualified health centers positioned throughout all five boroughs. She brings over 25 years of experience in healthcare service delivery to marginalized, underserved, and immigrant communities affected by HIV and AIDS, substance use disorders, and homelessness. She holds extensive experience working with the LGBTQ community, specifically young MSMs. And currently she sits on the board of Elmcore Youth and Adult Activities, and she's the mother of three lovely girls and is of Haitian descent. And so once again, we're happy to have two folk, two women, two powerful women, one from the board and one from our leadership team. And following up is someone that we partner with um, very well and we're excited to have her. And then when we talk about black and brown women, she's bringing the Latina to the table. And so we have our brown here with Natalie Rubio Torrio, originally from Peru, founder and executive director of Voces Latina. She's also a licensed social worker committed to fighting HIV and violence in the immigrant Latino community for the past 20 years, and for the past 16 years has dedicated her time making Voces Latina a community-driven, culturally responsive agency in Jackson Heights, Queens, and serving recent immigrants from Latin America and providing services for over 4,000 individuals annually. Natalie's work brings attention to many Latino subpopulations and their fears of immigration, violence, and increased increased risk of HIV and AIDS. So I just want to thank all you ladies, of course, for joining us today as we have a conversation really about how COVID has not really um, brought anything new to the table, but has definitely exposed several things that we already knew existed in our community. And so we're going to talk a little bit about them. We're going to talk about the historical understanding of what we've learned as people who dealt with another public health issue of HIV and AIDS in our community. We're gonna talk about how domestic violence and intimate partner violence has, has been an issue that we've been all fighting and battling and some of us have lived through in one way or another. I always say I'm a young person that grew up in a house where there was violence. And so I just wanna make sure that we speak truth uh, we tell everybody, welcome to Elmcore's living room. This is how we talk. These are the conversations that we have, the trusted leaders that we speak with. And so we're just going to get going. You guys ready? Please speak a bit about your work and how you came to wanting to address domestic violence, HIV, and just having real connection and human justice work in our communities. I, so I always say I came into this work by accident. Uh, um, I was... Uh, 
you know, young person in, from a Haitian family. I was supposed to be a nurse because everybody else in my family was a nurse, but I knew I didn't want to be a nurse. And, uh, but I knew I wanted to do something helping other people and doing something in healthcare. Um, so I really got started in this working at, um, I started working at Cumberland Diagnostic and Treatment Center, which is in the Fort Greene section of Brooklyn. And I, um, I was working in patient accounts because I, at the time I was an accounting major and didn't really realize that from that moment that things were going to take a different turn for me. Um, again, being from Haitian descent and um, working in a facility that was working with diverse populations, something, this thing started happening where we were getting an increased number of patients coming into the facility. And this thing was HIV. We were getting, um, we were one of the designated centers that was getting a lot of the immigrants and um, um, a lot of the immigrants that were coming um, and detainees that were coming from Guantanamo Bay and were being sent to New York, Boston and, and different places. So we had an influx and we had an increased demand in our infectious disease department and they were looking for all hands on deck because they had to translate for these individuals. And it was just so interesting to me, like to see how how I love my culture and just to see how these individuals were coming to the center. They didn't know they this was their first time and they're coming with this disease that people were categor categorizing them based off and um and were oppressing them because of because at the time um, which is not now, but at the time when it, when HIV first came out, and just to be clear, you know, it came out as AIDS. We didn't. We found out about HIV after AIDS, but Haitians were part of the four H's. It was homosexual, hemophiliacs, heroin users, and Haitians, and they and that was so stigmatizing because you, it was like you didn't even want to be near uh so it was like you you didn't even want to be near a haitian because they they'll give you um they'll give you aids i couldn't i i couldn't go get blood give blood at the time to american red cross because i was of haitian descent so those things kind of stuck with me and you know just working with the population by force and um and empathizing with their stories and just hearing different stories from men, women, um, older people who were infected and how they got infected and coming into this country, you know, what it meant to them and to get treatment and just even just dealing with the cultural shock of it. It just it just stirred something from um, stirred something within me that had that really propelled me into this work that I'm doing that I'm doing in the present. And uh, I never look back from the moment and I, I have no regrets. So Nadine, when you started off, I thought to myself, oh my goodness, we, we have the same story in the beginning. Um, I'm a person of Caribbean descent. And so that history of nurses in the family is something that I know very well also. And um, I wanted, I knew that at the time I was like, I want to be a doctor. Like I was going to go a little like what I thought at the time was one step further, <laughs> I'm going to become a doctor. Um, but I eventually, and I would also say it, it seemed like an accident at the time as far as how I got into this field. So when I was in college, I was getting ready to graduate and I was looking for employment and I had gone to an interview and the person that I interviewed with, she was, um, you know, a black woman, we were talking and she said to me, she said, you know, you should go get your master's. And I hadn't thought about it before. And at, by that time, I was just trying to get out of college in my fifth year. So I was just like, I kind of want to just leave now. Um, but she was actually, she, she has no idea how the part that she played in my life. 
And I think that happens a lot for us. We have conversations with other women, women of color, and they might not necessarily know the impact that they've had because after speaking with her, she was actually the person that put it into my head that made me decide to go get my master's in social work. Now, my choosing the actually field that I was in, I was working in child welfare for, for quite some time, but I have always had a desire and, and um, passion and closeness for working in the field of HIV. Um, since at the time when I was younger, both my parents actually died of AIDS. So they were um, diagnosed with, at a time where you didn't know what it was, um, one death certificate states something completely different from one year to the next in a matter of months. And so they passed away from AIDS. And I can tell you that as far as, you know, families and Caribbean families, it was not something that I knew of. I didn't know what that was as a child. I didn't know what they actually passed away from. It was this hidden secret that no one spoke of, right? And when we talk about stigma later on, it is definitely a part of that because when I found out um, the actual cause because of the time that we were living in, it was nothing that I could speak of. I literally had to keep it a secret because of the fear of someone else finding out that my parents actually passed away from AIDS to the point that when people used to ask me, I used to tell them that my parents died in a car accident. And that was my truth and that was my story until adulthood. And so when I, I started off working at Diaspora Community Services, working in their maternal group home, and I'm, I just knew it wasn't right. And I was very fortunate that they had a program working with people living with HIV and AIDS to provide case management services. And when I transferred to that, it just felt like I was home. And having an opportunity to be able to work with individuals, support them, listen to them, um, and even at times share a little bit of my of myself for them to have a better understanding. Um, as well as when I was in my youth, I used to counsel at a camp specifically for um, what was called children with special needs. And for a week, the camp specifically serviced children living with HIV. And so at that time, it was definitely a challenge because you had young children taking medication. They didn't know what they were taking it for, um, dealing with a lot of being ostracized, even as children, because at that time, a lot of their parents had passed away and they were living with other relatives that didn't want to be around them. Um, having couldn't share toilet seats, had to have their own everything. And so, like I said, once I, you know, became an adult and I got a chance to work in that world, I just felt very, a lot of gratitude to be able to work in that field. And then moving into um, substance treatment was also dear because, you know, my, my father, um, you know, use drugs, and that's essentially how he contracted HIV and passed it on to my mother. So for me, being able to work in that field and to be able to really provide support in an ear and the kind of empathy and compassion that I know I'm able to provide was was really great for me. Um, so, so for me, it's um, some similarities. Uh, I think we've all kind of entered the field of a in, in similar ways, um, my experience was um, I always worked in the area. Well, I was trained in the criminal court in Manhattan as um, with domestic violence, and um, but when I was doing my master's, I um, was put in a placement where I literally had to look for my own agency to look for clients, um, and it happened to be one with H with a study related to HIV and women. Um, being that I was very interested in working in my community, I went to search for agencies that would allow me in 
um, that would let me in and speak with clients, right? And that was a little bit hard. But I found an, I found a couple of agencies and I, we had to do focus groups and um, interviews and all. But uh, I never really had an interest in that area. My interest is always women and children, adolescents, you know, violence. And, but when I heard the stories of the women that I was interviewing that lived with HIV, they were immigrant Latinas, uh, their stories just sounded like my immigrant experience, right? my parents' immigrant experience, but they just happened to contract HIV. And um, I really saw myself, I saw my mother, I saw my sister and all these women. And it just, I guess it impacted me so much that I dedicated my entire career to HIV prevention. And on top of that, when we did interview women, I'd say nine out of 10, if not 10, also experienced or had experienced domestic violence or intimate partner violence. So in uh, the work that I was doing, I automatically saw that there is no way that we can talk about HIV without also talking about violence when we were dealing with uh, Latinas. So that very, it, it, and so immediately I was able to see that um, although services were offered or available in both areas, rarely were they offered in, at the, under the same roof within the same organization or programming. And, um, but I saw there was a huge need. And on top of that with counseling or culturally responsive counseling, right? So um, although a lot of the women that we interviewed were connected to medical care and treatment for their HIV, um, many were not connected to services that would respond to their emotional needs. Um, they felt very alone. They lived with the stigma. They wouldn't let even neighbors know. I mean, it was just a huge, huge secret, but a huge load on their shoulders. So that was kind of the beginning of Voces Latinas. We began having uh, workshops and at, in the evenings, we'd have workshops, we'd have forums, we tried to put service providers in the same room with immigrant Latinas living with HIV so they can talk and really understand what the needs were. And, um, and it worked, you know, it worked, but we, but, so we essentially, we discovered a gap in the services for women, in particular Latinas. And, um, and we, as Bostas, we, that's how we were born. We started filling in that gap. And um, till now, knock on wood, until I, it's time to get, you know, to retire or get, go on to the next thing I've dedicated, uh, because I see that this is very prevalent and it could happen to anybody. And, you know, our, my immigrant story is a little, very similar to the women that we serve, um, where I, as a child, saw my mother kind of struggle, face discrimination, uh, her face lack of, uh, lack of being able to search for resources because of the a lack of language skills. Um, and it's kind of a full circle coming back to where we arrived. We arrived in Elmhurst and um, when I was three, and then now we're actually, you know, this is where I started Voces Latinas in the kind of the same area serving the same community. So it's kind of full circle, but my, my true heart, my, true, my work is really with women. So I wanna thank you guys all for kind of explaining um, really in depth how you got to somewhere. And I think it's, it's important. Um, we don't normally talk so long about like why, but I think when we're talking about things like HIV and, and intimate partner violence, domestic violence, it's a very intimate thing, right? It's really hard to kind of tell, tell how you got to that work without it feeling kind of personal. And so I wanna thank you guys for that. Because I think one of the things too that's necessary when we talk about human justice work is that we have to bring humanity to it. I too am, um, of Caribbean descent. And one of the things I think that as immigrants we can talk about, and I'm gonna kind of pick it up, and if we could just briefly kind of address this, just so we get to more than um, one question. Uh, the reality of it is uh, COVID has kind of brought some um, issues about stigma. And you all 
all talked about it in some way. And even when we talk about violence and intimate partner violence, especially in immigrant homes or just homes as a whole, especially homes of people of color, you're told to keep everything inside, right? Like you don't go outside, you don't tell people what's going on, like what's happening is, you don't, I mean, literally I was told what goes on in our house stays in our house was the quotes, right? And so we talk about stigma, but it's really about, um, how does how does stigma and education impact the public health approach? So with COVID, I'm just curious if you guys could briefly kind of connect a little bit of, and you kind of already talked about like the stigma that happens around HIV, because as much as COVID is not HIV, there is a stigma that is coming around those who had it, like I can't sit next to you, like people are coughing and folks are running, like literally running away. And no one really thinks about how it makes people feel. But maybe you guys can talk a little bit about how stigma interferes with um, really having a true public health approach. Well, I think for I think in terms of the stigma, you know, when you go when you when you rewind and you go back to the HIV epidemic, you know, the, there was these classes brought, you know, the these classes of these particular silos of these of people who were impacted and affected by it in terms of, you know, what characteristic you fell into. And based off of that, people didn't know they didn't know, understand what what was happening, how you were getting infected, how the how why it progressed so quickly. It, it you just didn't know, and it just caused a fear. And then the fear created the stigma because you know what? I don't want to catch it. Oh, I this is who they say it gets it. I ain't going near you, you or you. Okay, so now this is how we left it, and. You fast forward 30, 30 years later, about, and you're you're in the same thing. We have COVID. We it just came up. It's like you thought it, it was a flu. And interestingly enough, with enough with the stigma, this is what HIV used to be known as the the the, the flu, the thing that makes you feel like you got you're sick. It's the same thing with COVID, and nobody really understands it and they and thinking this was this particular population but you know what it's hitting everybody so again it's the thing that's happening that we don't understand that we you know what i need to stay away from you you and you but also or if i don't go any place or if i you know if i just stay away from these people you know, I don't need to get tested. I don't need to get checked out because you know what? I'm I'm staying in my own little zone. It 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 just it, it, it there's just that 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 fear that's come out that relates both of them. That's creating this that I think creates the same type of approach to people really reaching out and getting for that public awareness that public health message for people to really take it seriously and follow through with you know getting tested getting care recognizing their symptoms just you know i'm just so fully entrenched in it these days because of you know um working with the testing um tents and the community testing sites and just so just you you're you're almost at a place where you feel like you're begging people to, to get tested. And there's all, all other stuff that's tied into it. You know, there's also like fears of, you know, immigration and that we have all, we have public health centers, um, public health center um, clinics and hospitals all across these boroughs where people are afraid to even walk through the door to even give any information to get tested because they're like, I don't know, you know, I don't know if you're going to have INS wait, waiting outside the door for me or ICE when I finish, when you get this information and pass it through your system. So, yeah, there's just so many similarities that it, it's, 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 it's daunting. I would like to add, like, another layer to that in terms of the immigrant uh, community. So, they, yeah, I... Um, when we are also participate in those uh, testing events um, with the tents, you know, there's so many people walking around with symptoms, but they're so afraid to test because God forbid I do come out positive. Now I can't go to work. 
Now I have to, who's going to take care of my kids now? So there's so much more worry, right? Um, not just about oh, if I've got the virus, but they now are thinking about work. They don't want to lose their job. Who's going to watch their kids? What, so it's a little scary because we have people that feel symptoms that are just passing by the tents, not really testing because of so many other worries in life. Um, and then, of course, the lack of knowledge around insurance, right? Insurance or being asked for any particular ID. Um, but, but what was most, I guess, most uh, just surprising to me was that just like deportation is scarier than abuse or any other kind of, um, even HIV or any other kind, anything else that could go on in the person's life, getting deported is like the, 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 mo the most worrisome thing. I feel like even now with COVID, it's with the virus, it's, it's not um, so much that it's, you know, getting the virus, which I'm not, I'm not downplaying that. I think people still are afraid, but I think as an immigrant, undocumented person, there's so many other things that they're going to worry about before getting tested, or maybe they stop from getting, that will stop them from getting tested. And it's all the realities, you know, right, that they have to live um, in, in, in this world. So, and many of, and I'll just, to, and one more thing to add, the housing situation for many of our community members, it's so overcrowded that, again, if one person comes out positive or even doesn't come out of their room for a while, you know, the stigma they have to go through in that entire household or that entire whole house. So there's just so many reasons why somebody may not want to get tested just because of all those other things. And I think that that's a really important point. And I want Danielle to still address the question, but I want to just follow up a bit, you know, as we talk about testing and we talk about, you know, can we talk about it with HIV? And that's kind of like what we're trying to do is right, connect the connect the thing is that we talk about testing in a vacuum and we forget all of the other things that's happening in someone's life that would stop them from being tested. Um, Danielle tells, tells it clearly and we saw it where we worked and where we continue to do this work and I'm sure you see it Natalie and Nadine that there are people who won't get tested because they're afraid of the abuse that they may be subject to if they do come back positive or you know, being left because if he goes or if she goes even, like not male or female, I could lose my breadwinner. I could lose the person who makes sure that I can take care of myself and my children. And all of those things play. And that's the reason why we're having these conversations. We're having this dialogue from this place here at Elmcore is because we don't see any issue. And we say it over and over again as a single issue. There are multiple layers to something people have multiple things happening in their lives. And I think you're speaking clearly to that. So Danielle? Yes, I definitely think about the, the single parents, the grandparents, the sole breadwinners during this time. And the fact that, yeah, I, I would, I'm a single parent. I would, the, the challenge of, the idea of, you know, get tested and potentially come out positive or just try to act like I'm okay to continue to just go to work because I have to go to work. I can't afford to lose my job. What happens to me um, if I lose my job? What happens to me if I don't bring my paycheck home? And, you know, this is what's expected. Um, and so I think it's, it's definitely a challenge. And then you also think about the fact that, as you said before, just with HIV, it's like, okay, so with COVID, kids couldn't get it. But now kids are getting a certain age range, couldn't get it. You know, it was only for individuals with chronic conditions and the elderly. And now we see that the ages between like 18 and 24, like the, the increase in numbers of individuals that are, that are testing positive for COVID and then how that impacts us, as well as the fact that when COVID came out, the one place where a lot of our communities go for treatment, going to the emergency room, and then all of a sudden, you couldn't go to the emergency room for anything, but you, you practically need to be near death and then you can go. So don't need any other form of treatment, but this is the only place I have to go. 
So what am I supposed to do when I don't have health insurance, when I don't have the things, you know, something, something like that, and now you're telling me that I can't go here? What do I do then? And that is, is very challenging if you already have a chronic health condition, but you still need to go to the ER, but they have a billion questions before they'll even accept you. So all of those things, I think, definitely pay a part in regards to the stigma. And as, as was said before, the questions that we have to ask ourselves before we can put health first, because a lot of times for, um, for our communities, health will be the last thing on the list because it will be the first thing to debilitate everything else. And it's and and I think it's it speaks volumes, right? We talk about a little bit always as an anti-racist group. We always talk about the intersectionalities of how race and structural racism plays a part of all of this stuff. And even when you talk about the healthcare system and the level of trauma that people experience, I say, imagine what COVID has done of the trauma of not in New York and in our area specifically, because we were in the epicenter of the epicenter, where people were telling you your doctors everyone was telling you, do not go to the hospital unless you are near death. And what kind of trauma was happening in people's homes at a time where you have a family member? I, I mean, I know personal stories of people having to make really hard decisions to the point that a family member died in their home because they didn't know if it made more sense to stay home or to go. And, and it also talks about how our communities are structured. In Queens, we don't have enough beds. We don't have enough hospitals. And so when you look at that structure, in Manhattan, you wouldn't have been told um, as readily to stay home. But in Brooklyn and in Queens, where there's limited beds, you were told to stay home. This is what we talk about when we talk about things that are perfectly designed. And so I want to switch a bit about the idea that COVID is a form of violence, right? It is violent. What people have experienced is a form of violence. So as we talk about domestic violence and intimate partner violence, I want you guys to, you know, there's been a whole lot of conversation about um, the increase and the uptick and, and the, 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 the more violence that's happening either in the home or with intimate partner violence. I want you guys to tell us a little bit from your own experience, what do you feel is not being told? What are you feeling is not being said? Like for me, I feel like someone should say, and there are a few that say, like COVID is violent. What it has done, it is violent to human beings and especially when a lot of it probably didn't have to happen the way it did, that it was designed in such a way for us to be so um, disproportionately impacted. To me, that is violence. And so I'm wondering from you guys' perspective, what is missing in the, the media coverage of intimate partner violence, domestic violence, and violence as a whole? Well, I can tell you that from our work here in um, Jackson Heights, Corona, that many of the women that we're serving um, were working or working, you know, normally work in bars and restaurants along Roosevelt Avenue. And those were, you know, what were the first things that closed, right? With COVID with bars and restaurants. And um, so many lost jobs, right? Uh, so you have this virus that everyone is afraid of. You have a community who's afraid to get tested because they have to work, but you also have in the same community, the, the first jobs, the first things that closed were their workplaces. So now what do they do? They're, they're desperate for work now, right? They're desperate for work. So they're finding, what we're, st we're seeing is that we're getting a lot more calls around domestic violence and in a form of trafficking at the same time. So what we're seeing is that women are, that lost their jobs that are not working. And even now that the restaurants and bars are open, they're opening up on the street. So it's not inside. So they can't, you know, the same kind of work can't be done out in the open. And they can't have the number of waitresses out there, right? 
So now they're going kind of underground and doing other kind of high risk work. Again, are they testing for COVID? Are they now, now these might be places that us at the HIV prevention agency cannot get into as readily as we were able to in bars and restaurants. Um, so this is, this is alarming us because we are getting a lot more calls in people in crises, in crises. Well, we don't even have their information yet, yet we're, we're being asked to call, you know, it's not being asked, but we're, it's, it's sounding like we need to call an ambulance or call the police or something, yet we don't have any background information yet. But we're getting more and more, and you know, as the, as the um, and we're pretty known in the community for being, you know, being accessible to women in the, that are working in these types of jobs. But now it's a different, it, it, it's, it's looking a little different. It's looking a little bit less, less open to really saying what exactly they're doing and where they're doing it. So it's, when I say it's a little bit more underground, it's, it's scarier because now we're not able to get to them and access them as quickly. But again, they, this is a group of women that need to continue making a living. And then you have the other group that is, is, has always been forced to go out and make a living no matter what you have to do to support the family and for that, you know, to contribute economically. And so this is what we're finding. Um, and it's a huge concern because as, as it's always been kind of an issue here in this area, but as a result of COVID, it's a it's it's a bigger issue. I think it's a it's it's going more underground at the, at the in, in terms of the level of risk that um, our group of women are are experiencing or are getting into. Um, but now we have not only HIV to worry about. But now we have COVID, and then really quick among our transgender community, same thing. We've even had to kind of. Um, not make a deal, but kind of negotiate with some of our clients to be to pay a number of months of rent so that they don't have to go out to the streets, you know, and expose not only themselves, but also all the people that they live with in their home, like the roommates or all the other people. So this is this is this is what COVID, this is what kind of COVID looks like in our community. So Nadine, I'm going to ask you to um, follow up with a, a different question um, along the same lines of, you know, our responsibilities, right? So Natalie's talking about what we're seeing, the changes, and how we're doing stuff. But I'm, I want to know as organizers, how do we see our role and like our accountability during this pandemic um, regarding, because you work in healthcare, regarding health education and health literacy to address these health disparities that we're seeing that prior to COVID was plaguing our communities that may be reshaping, Natalie, like you said, going further underground, that these health disparities were already there. And how do you, how do you see um, yourself as an organizer, your role and your accountability to community to address some of these um, health disparities issues and what needs to change in the conversation about health disparities? I think one of the things that needs to change is looking at it, look, looking at the full, looking at the full picture. I think one of the biggest places, the biggest things that we miss, we look at social determinants of care. We look at all the aspects that impacts individuals from accessing care. We talk, we, we have all the resources in place for that, you know, to address all of that. We, you know, you have a transportation, you have a transportation barrier, we're going to give you a metro card. We're going to give you access, uh, access a ride. You have a language barrier, we'll provide you with a, with an interpreter. But what happens to the social determinants of COVID. What happened to the social determinants of domestic violence? Where are we um, addressing these things? How are we addressing these things? Why can't, why don't we see these things being synonymous and having the same depth um, of, the, of importance in being able to, to address it? You know, I was a, a, you know, I was a victim of domestic violence over 30 years ago. I would not want to be a victim in this in this time right now because who's addressing my issue because i'm I'm stuck you say you you put shelter in place I'm sheltered in place, but i can't i I can't leave I can't stay you know go hang out by a friend all day then go back to my my home. I also feel like 
we're missing the mark when we we we, we have during domestic domestic violence month we have these nice little sessions and you know the people do round tables but i think we just always gloss it over we address the issue we we create these public um platforms for discussion but do we even ever get to the core of it? Do we even say what's the next steps? How are we going to tackle it? Here's, this is what we're doing. I, I feel like we completely missed the mark and I, I'm just as guilty, you know, because I sit in that, that operational administrative level where, you know, in terms of making changes, but it goes to a higher level in terms of, you know, how do we make it such a public focus? You know, we were receiving all these things, um, these text messages about um, um, from the those NYC alerts. They're like, if you feel you're not safe, come on, come on now, <laughs> come on. I used to look at it like, really? Like, yeah. I, I don't even feel like. How about if I don't even have a cell phone to get an alert? How am I getting this message? I, I don't have a TV to even see it popping up we have to do better. And I, you know, I just feel like it, when it comes, like when it, HIV, you know, not that we've done any, we've done a lot of great work around HIV because we had to really do that. We did, we, they're doing it like COVID in terms of like really like, you know, it's going to be a process because it's just, we're just in it. But domestic violence has been around from even, from inception yeah from inception the first time right so why why what is that you know i I think your point though when you talk about social determinants and we're talking about how it plays out in intimate partner violence and even the reason why we move from just saying domestic violence to intimate partner violence right is the other piece is people need to remember that domestic violence just means violence within the domicile And so it doesn't always mean between a spouse. It could be the abuse of a child. It could be Mm -hmm. the abuse of each other, siblings. It could be all of those things. And then we had to attach intimate partner violence because we wanted to see violence as a whole. And I think it's indicative to the idea that sometimes you forget to look at the whole. And so to your point, Nadine, I think a lot of the times the reason why we haven't tackled violence the way that we need to attack violence is just the same way i said that to me covid is violence but when we talk about covid we talk about it a particular way i i believe not being employed in us in the richest country in the world is violent i think not being able to get immigration status and yet you're working and cleaning up people's toilets is violence like these are forms of violence and so when we say why haven't we addressed that because we won't address, and I'm gonna say it straight because that's what we do here at Elm Cause Living Room. We don't address violence that impacts black and brown people specifically. And I'm saying it, like we can address certain forms of violence if it is relative to the whole, but we do not address violence when it affects us. And we're talking about very specific communities and how violence is addressed in us. And so I wanna switch to you, Daniel, a little bit as we talk about COVID-19 as a public health issue, and we just talked about social determinants, and as you know, here at Omicron, we talk all the time about the layers of the intersectionalities of race and healthcare and the economy and, and housing and immigration, and we don't look at them as single issues, but tell me a little bit, especially because one of the programs that you oversee, the We Care program that does do HIV education and testing, as well as substance use work, uses an evidence-based program that we all know called Seeking Safety. And I think the words alone speak volumes. And one of the things I have to say that you've done really well is explain that Seeking Safety is beyond just the idea of the traditional concept of domestic violence and that Seeking Safety is much deeper. So can you talk a little bit about if COVID-19 is going to be seen as a public health issue with all of these layers, how do we seek safety in that dynamic? Well, I think with this within COVID, it's like you said, I think it's a part of being able to really peel back the layers of what we see 
violence and abuse to be. I think that um, even when we talk about seeking safety, like the very first part of that is literally to ensure that the person themselves develops a concept and construct of safety for themselves, not necessarily delving into and, you know, bringing up the trauma itself, but how can you be able to feel safe just within the session, just within that time, just within that moment or within that group. And I think that within this time of, of COVID, I think a part of helping to feel safety is a part of also addressing just the mental health issues that come from the trauma that we've been feeling. I can tell you that um, a lot of the, the counseling that I've, that I've been doing has been, surround, has been around the idea of, I can't, I can't like, I can't take this one more thing. You know, I can't do this. This is too much. This is, I feel like I'm being closed in. I'm feeling like I have no place to go. I feel like I have nowhere to run. And I think that it's very important for us to be able to, to address that part of what a pandemic causes when you are now in a situation where you cannot identify this belongs to you. Oh, you're eating all that sugar, that diabetes belongs to you. You keep eating that fried chicken, that high blood pressure belongs to you. That high cholesterol, it doesn't belong to anyone. This is something that it's, you can't see it, can't taste it, can't touch it, it's there. It is nothing that you can say, I did this to myself. That's not what this is, right? The accountability actually belongs to, it's so much bigger than that, right? And so when we think about that, we also have to be able to take accountability for having compassion for the masses as a whole, for, for us within our communities and being able to address the issues that come with dealing with something as substantial as a pandemic, right? So you we talked about um, just the effects of violence, the immigration, um, the stigma that comes from or is exacerbated by what we're already have been dealing with. Like it was April, we were dealing with stressors. We were dealing with um, challenges um, within our communities. And then March, and then it was just a whole nother aspect of being compounded like layers to a cake of what it is that we have to deal with. So I definitely think that we have to be able to address the mental health concerns that come from this. We need to be able to have the uncomfortable conversations that are about domestic violence, that are about stigma. Um, I thought about a uh, a partner, a, a relationship when I was working in the field of HIV. And one day, um, the person that I was working with, their partner called me. For some reason, I was the person that they called because he was in crisis, because his partner was being abusive. And I think about something like that, the, the you know individual was locked in a particular space, couldn't get out and they were dealing with that. And I think about what would that look like now during COVID? What would that look like now for the person to eventually be able to get out of that particular situation within that moment, but then wondering where are they going to go? Because that's not that person's apartment, right? What does that individual do dealing with the the um, challenges and the discrimination of being within the LGBT community. What does he do? How does the police respond to him when he says that his partner was abusing him? And what does that look like? Plus, if then the partner calls and says, well, you're, you can't go anywhere because I'm just gonna tell people you've got COVID. Those are the things that are real. Those are real conversations. The children who are wondering that who, which parent can they stay with when, whenever this violence stops or if the divorce happens or 
I'm going to protect the, the abused spouse, the part, I'm going to protect that parent with everything I have. But what happens in the midst of COVID when, you know, it's not so easy or that you have to also deal with the fact that you have to be asked three questions <laughs> before you can be able to go someplace um, that will hopefully provide you some level of safety. But in this time, in this environment, we always have to just ask, is it safer? Or can I survive the next thing? Because sometimes the next thing, the unknown thing, seems even scarier than what it is that I already know. And that I'm unfortunately, I don't even want to say used to every day. That sounds like such a poor word. Um, but that I experience enough where I have a better understanding of how to manage this experience. So I want to thank you for that um, because I think that's a good place for us to end and just say that there are real issues happening in our community. Um, Natalie shared with us kind of off about a woman who has to decide between an ACS case, COVID, immigration, all of those things. And that's not a situation that people should have to choose between. That is never a choice. Most of our communities, especially our women in our communities, as we said, Breonna Taylor's name earlier, we'll say it again, are forced into situations that are not choices. And so I wanna thank you guys for sharing your stories. I wanna thank Natalie Rubio, um, specifically from VOSES and for VOSES Latina for not just being um, a warrior for the Latina community, but being a partner with Elmcore as we continue to address the issues in our community. I wanna thank you for being with us today. I wanna thank Danielle for not just being an employee at Elmcore, but to being a part of the folks who sit in the think tank. She's been with me before Elmcore, she's been with me now. And so I, gr I graciously say thank you for sharing your story, your courageous story with everyone. And Nadine, as always, thank you, my sister, for being on the board, giving us leadership and governance, but more importantly, being a warrior, not just at Elmcore, but in your community. So on behalf of Elmcore Youth and Adult Activities, we'd like to thank you for joining us today. Remember to follow us on social media outlets, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Elmcore. And sub subscribe to our podcast channel on Spotify, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts. And also make sure to follow Voices Latina. All right, good night. Thank you, guys. <laughs>